The gospel is not something that belongs in a test tube. It is not something sterile, something that we just study, but it's something that is supposed to break out in our lives, and it's supposed to break out into the life of the world, and it's supposed to make an impact. And so it reminds us that the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power to change. It's the power to change in ourselves. It's the power to provoke change in the lives of other people, and it's the power to provoke change in the world that we live in. And we're going to see those as we move through. And so our big idea this morning is just what I said, the power of God through the Gospels, the power to transform lives and to change the world, and God has chosen the church to carry this transformative gospel to the world for the glory of Jesus' name. In the story we're looking at, the Apostle Paul is the main actor, but just as Paul was a chosen instrument to go to the Gentiles, you, brother, you, sister, are God's chosen instrument to take the gospel to the place where you live, to the place where you work, and the place where you do life. There, there's some some disagreement about among people who study the Bible. Is the book of Acts describing what happened, or is it prescribing what ought to happen? Okay, and that's a good question. At the very least, what we see in Acts chapter 19 is God is, the Holy Spirit is casting an ideal vision of what it looks like for the gospel to impact culture. It's at the very least, it's a target on the wall for us to pursue. And we'll see there's some parts that are probably not normative, but there are some parts that are. So first we see that the power of God in the gospel is the power of God to glorify Jesus. In verses uh, 11 through 17, it says this. Hold on. I just want to pray before we get rolling. Heavenly Father, before we read this text, I just ask that you would be here. We ask that you would open our ears, God, to hear your word. Pray that you'd protect my mouth. God, help me not to say uh, too much beyond what you've written. God, help me to teach your word accurately and clearly. Yeah, just pray that you would be here, that you'd move in our hearts, and that we would... Uh, our lives would be changed and that we would live differently because of what we hear today. So we ask for you to be here in Jesus' name. Amen. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So the very first verse tells us that Paul was doing extraordinary miracles. This is really interesting in the in the Greek. You translated this literally. It is miracles that do not happen. Miracles that do not happen were happening by the hands of Paul. And so the translators have translated it extraordinary. And they're saying to even these things are so extraordinary to such an extent that handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away. So the, and the idea of a handkerchief, the, the word is like a sweatband or something, something that he'd used to wipe away his sweat while he was working making tents. And people were getting these handkerchiefs and taking them and were experiencing healing through using them. Now, the text tells us that this was extraordinary. These are things that don't normally happen. And so probably these are not things that we should normally expect to happen. And so it, when you get in the mail, the little thing that promises you a, a blessed prayer cloth, when you send in your donation, you can just drop that in the trash. 
Uh-huh. So, so there's no there's no ministry of holy handkerchiefs. Uh, that's not a normative ministry of the church. So this was an extraordinary thing that God did. And you know what's really going on is God is accommodating people's faith. People who in faith, in order for God to demonstrate the truth of the gospel that Paul is preaching, he chooses to accommodate people's, honestly, what we'd call superstition. They're kind of being superstitious and handling handkerchiefs like magical amulets. But God, in his overflowing grace, he accommodates and still heals. And, you know, he still does that sometimes today. I remember when I was a new believer praying in lots of ways that I wouldn't pray today. And it's amazing how God was gracious to answer prayer. And so they're taking handkerchiefs, aprons, touched them, carried away sick. Diseases were leaving them. Evil spirits came out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So these were not believers. These were guys who had observed the power of the name of Jesus in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and they decided that this would be one more tool for their tool belt. And so they decide that they're going to use the name of Jesus too. It says seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. This word translated extolled literally means made large. It was magnified. I think the New American Standard translates it. it his name was magnified. But it says that fear fell upon them all. There, this is almost a parallel to Acts chapter 5. I'm going to turn over there and read it really quick. In Acts chapter 5, you remember the episode with Ananias and Sapphira? They lied to the apostles about the, um, the sale price of a piece of land. They presented part of it as though it were the whole thing. And Peter says... Why'd you do this? You didn't lie to men, but to God. Why has Satan put it in your heart? And what happened? They dropped dead. And in Luke's summary of that, in in verse 12 of chapter 5, it says, Now signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in the Solomon of Portico. And then verse 13 says, None of the rest dared to join them. Right, because they've just seen what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. So there, in this early church, there were no nobody was faking it. Right, nobody was. There were no false professions of faith. These people were scared to associate themselves with the church if they weren't sincere. And uh, and it says, no one dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Is how the ESV translates it. That word is the same word that we're looking at. That means to be made large, to be magnified. So even though people were not ready to accept the gospel, they respected the gospel because they had seen the power of God displayed. And we see the same thing going on in chapter 19 uh, when the, with this episode with the exorcist. They've seen Paul performing these amazing miracles, and they've seen Paul... Uh, casting out demons and they've seen how uh, 
the name of Jesus is not something to be trifled with. Someone can't just pick up the name of Jesus and put it in their pocket like a lucky charm, right? And so even though they weren't ready to accept Jesus, they respected the name of the Lord Jesus. In our situation, even though we may not uh, know people may not get healed with your handkerchief, but the gospel still calls us to let the power of the gospel be displayed in our lives in such a way that people respect the gospel, that the power of Jesus is displayed in our lives through transformed lives, that the power of Jesus is displayed in the way that we love people, that the power of Jesus will be displayed in our lives uh, by the way that we communicate ourselves with care and concern. And the result of that will be that even if people are not ready to accept the gospel, even if people decide to reject the name of Jesus, there's still there's going to be something that's going to keep them, even if they think you're a little crazy for believing that God took on human flesh and he lived a perfect life and he died and he rose from the dead, even if they think you're a little kooky, they're going to be hesitant to write off the name of Jesus because they see the evidence of his influence in your life. The power of the gospel is this power to magnify the name of Jesus in the places where we live, in the places where we work. Secondly, the power of the gospel is the power of God to transform lives. We see in verses 18 through 20, also many of those who were now believers, those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. They've responded to the gospel. They become believers. They're beginning to be convicted about the practices in their life. And so they come confessing and divulging. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So this uh, 50,000 pieces of silver doesn't mean a lot to us, but one of those silver coins would have been a day's wage for uh, one of these people. And so if you if they worked six days a week, which they probably did, uh, comes out to about 160 years worth of income is these. Uh, so in today's currency, that would be something like $8.3 million. It's a lot of money. What would provoke them to give up that kind of investment. When we looked at Acts chapter 8, we talked about kind of the the magical uh, worldview of the people in the first century. Uh, Roman people were very interested in magic. they, They saw their world as a world that was energized by spiritual forces. And magic was a way that they felt they could get control of those spiritual forces. So it's not surprising that they're stealing Paul's handkerchief and taking it home and trying to use it for healing because they were that was very common they were always using amulets and potions and very 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 common and so it was a way that when you feel magic is basically a way that when you feel powerless you can try to get power and control over your over your circumstances right so it's a way that people who feel powerless get power So the way that we see the power of God here transforming lives is that apparently these people, when they experience the power of God in their lives, 
when they experience God's power in their own life, the transformation, they recognize that they did not need magic anymore. Uh, I love this because it shows us how we are really supposed to impact the culture. So often we try to find, uh, whether it's political means or social means, we try to find mechanisms where we can kind of take control of culture, where we can kind of convince people that they ought to behave the way that Christians think they ought to behave, right? But this shows us that God's really not interested in modifying people's behavior. But God's way of transforming culture is by changing the hearts of people by demonstrating his power in their life so that the thing that they leaned on for power becomes powerless. And when things lose their power, then they lose their value. The Apostle Paul had a similar experience. Of course, he didn't. He was a Jew, so he didn't dabble in magic. But he had quite a pedigree. He was a as Jewish a Jew as you could get. He had the best education that a Jew could get. He came from the a good family. He was... Uh, high ranking in the Jewish uh, hierarchy. He was respected by all of his peers. But this is what he says. He says, whatever gain I had, whatever things that I thought was valuable, any, all those things that gave me power, he said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That word that's translated rubbish, that's a pretty soft translation. It, uh, it literally means dung, poop. He says, he says, it's everything that I leaned on for power, everything that I leaned on for control in my world. He said to me, it's, it's nasty. He said it's it's worth less than nothing. It's just trash to be thrown out. So the power of God in the gospel is the power to change the way that we see the things that we used to lean on for power. Sometimes God does that immediately, and sometimes it's a process. It seems like in chapter 19 of Acts that it's a process, that these people had become believers and as they be, after they became believers, as they wrestled with the implications of what it means to follow an all-powerful God and to see his power worked out in their lives, they came to the conclusion that the power of God is not compatible with the practice of magic. And so, and the power of God that I've seen in my life is so great that I know that I know that I don't need this anymore. And so they bring out 160 years worth of wages out into the street and they burn it. So let me ask you, where do you get power? Are there some things that maybe you've been leaning on in your life that give you power, give you a sense of control over your life that maybe you need to let go of, that you need to treat as scubula? Oh, sorry, that's the Greek word for that uh, word rubbish. The way you look, your image, the way that people perceive you, is that how you get by in life is that what gives you confidence when you're talking to people or is that a way that you think you can get favor with people is by looking a certain way your career your salary having a certain amount of financial power does that make you feel in control knowing that if something were to happen that you've got a little money set by that's going to take care of you or maybe in your career you've got a little authority over people that makes you feel in control your education you think if you get that next degree that you're going to have a little more control and a little more power in your life. You can direct your own destiny if you get that next 
master's degree or doctorate degree or being a good person even. I think Christians are guilty of this a lot. We And this goes in with, with managing our image. If we convince everyone that we're a good person, we think we can have favor and have control in relationships. But the Apostle Paul says that all of these things are just rubbish. Interesting, though, if you continue reading on through the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, for example, one of the things that was advantageous for him was being a Roman citizen. And whenever he got into a bind, he would often pull out his Roman citizenship and say, hey, I'm a citizen, you can't beat me. I need to have a trial. And then when he, one of the kings that he's testifying before is being manipulated by the Jews to send him back to Jerusalem where they were plotting to murder him. And he said, oh, no, I ain't going back to Jerusalem. I'm a citizen. I'm going, I appeal to Caesar. And that's actually how he ends up getting to Rome. He says, I get, mm, you're not sending me back there. So this is my point. All of these things, the way you look, your career, your salary, your education, being a good person, all of these things may be you may be able to leverage them for the sake of advancing the gospel but they should never become identity markers and sources of validation the ways that you identify yourself in the world the way that you convince people that you deserve to exist we commend ourselves to no one on any basis other than Jesus Christ and his finished work he is my only appeal to god and Jesus Christ is the only reason we exist. So he has the power. So the power of the gospel changes lives. Third, the power of God in the gospel is the power to change the world. In verses 21 through 41, we'll start at 23. It says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Uh, the way is, is just, you know, that's talking about Christianity, this Christian faith. And it says there arose no little disturbance. That's Luke's way of saying there was a big disturbance. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So when Demetrius looked out, on the city of Ephesus, when he sees people burning their magical books, he looks out at what's going on. He sees a real threat, something you should know about the city of Ephesus. A lot of biblical scholars will equate Ephesus to Salt Lake City. What do you know about Salt Lake City? Mormons, that's right. So Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is headquartered there. But the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they have got like so they've got their hands in business They've got their own labeling, like they've got their own in grocery stores. You can go in and buy the, the Mormon brand of food. And so they, the Church of Latter-day Saints is sort of enmeshed into the whole social fabric of Salt Lake City. Well, that's very similar to what was going on in Ephesus. So the temple of, of Artemis in Ephesus was so rich that it acted like a bank. People from all over Asia would come and they would get loans at the temple of Artemis. 
So it was very wealthy, very powerful. Uh, Demetrius is not exaggerating when he says everybody in Ephesus worships her, everybody even in all of Asia worships her. She was considered the goddess of fertility. She was the one from whom all good things came. So you, they didn't necessarily demand that you worship only Artemis, but you needed to include her. You needed to respect her. And then here comes the Apostle Paul saying that Artemis is no god, that there's only one true god, and he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And all Ephesians should repent and turn away from worshiping Artemis and turn to this one true God. And Demetrius sees that Paul is getting some traction in this. And so he's nervous. And the threat that he sees is not just a threat to his... He says it was an economic threat. He said, this is where we get our wealth. This is where we get our income. But he saw in it a threat to the very fabric of society. He saw that Paul was a threat. The gospel that Paul was preaching was a threat to turning the whole system up on its head. And hadn't they, they in, uh, when Keith was preaching a couple of weeks ago, they had already been accused of that, right? They said, these men have come and they've turned the whole world upside down. And Demetrius, he was right. What, what he perceived as a threat in the gospel, he was exactly right. Think about this. This morning in Ephesus, there is no one even whispering, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The temple of Artemis is a ruin, and nobody even lives in the city of Ephesus anymore. The harbor has been silted in over years. Now it's not even on the coast anymore. It's like seven miles inland. Nobody lives there. It's not a center of commerce, and nobody worships Artemis. But this morning, around the world, there are some maybe two billion people confessing that Jesus is Lord. Demetrius was right to be afraid. Now, Christians have always been advocates of religious liberty, and you know why? Because we ain't scared. We know that our God is the one true God, and we know that he can fight his own battles. And that's what we see over and over and over again in the book of Acts, is God taking it to Artemis, taking it to every God, so-called God, that exalts itself up against him. Because he is the one true God. And so we don't need the point, we don't need to be ashamed We don't need to be apologetic about following this one true God. There are billions of brothers and sisters around the around the world. But we've got to learn how to follow him better in the culture where we're living. And so the city was filled with confusion and uh, the city clerk comes out. I'll just give you a summary here of the end. The city clerk comes out and he tries to calm down the crowd. He says, how who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis? He says, Demetrius, you're being a drama queen. But Demetrius is not. He knows what's up. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. He says, you can handle this in the court. They're scared that the Roman government's going to come in and shut things down. And so the he's trying to button things up. So by way of application, I just want to ask you, is the name of Jesus being magnified through your life? In the in the place where you work, in the place where you go, are you speaking the name of Jesus? Are you talking about Jesus? Are you telling people about what Jesus is doing in your life? Are you treating people with love and with respect so that even if they reject the person of Jesus, they'll still respect him? him because they see his power displayed in your life 
Are there any areas of your life where you need the transforming power of the gospel? Um, Are there any areas of your life that God is putting his finger on that you need to, where you're not trusting him, where you're using your own resources, your own mechanisms for, for keeping power, for keeping control? And what do you need to lay down at his feet and trust him? And third, what industries could be bankrupted by the church's repentant pursuit of holiness? I think about Demetrius being so threatened. And then I look at our Christian culture, and I'm pretty convicted because I feel like nobody perceives us as a threat, that we, uh, the church is largely just ignored and treated as irrelevant. And I think that's because we're not, the name of Jesus is not being magnified through our lives. And we don't need to be arrogant and obnoxious about our faith as we take it into the world. We need to be winsome. We need to be gracious. People need to see it uh, not just, again, not just as a theoretical option. And I think sometimes that's how we present it. We live our lives just like everybody else around us, and then we offer this theoretical Jesus who will forgive you of your sins if you pray the prayer. But the book of Acts doesn't show us that kind of theoretical Jesus. He shows us a Jesus who breaks into history and takes action dies a real death for real sins, and then he rises bodily from the dead, not spiritually, not metaphorically, but physically from the dead. He comes back to life to reign as a real king over the church. We need to present that kind of Jesus, not just a way out of hell, but as a king who reigns over all of life. And people need to see that king rule in our life. They need to see that displayed. And so that's our offer to them. So what industries could be bankrupted by the church's repentant pursuit of holiness? I think about pornography. I'm saddened when I think of how much of the, the, how many, how many Christian men are clicking those links and putting advertising dollars into the pockets of pornographers? and how they're they're generating revenue. I would love to see Christian men repenting once and for all, fully and finally, where it's not something that we're, I don't know how to describe this, and I don't want to be harsh. If this is something that guys are struggling with, I, w- I want you to know that you can, that this is a safe place. But I also want us to experience the power of Jesus and to be really fully and finally free of this stuff and just burn it like they did in Ephesus. Just burn it and be done with it. I have so much respect for a friend of mine who who had that struggle, and he went without Internet for like two years because he took the wireless card out of his computer and gave it to one of his friends to keep for him. He says, I'm I'm just, for a season, I just need to be without it. Uh, That takes guts. You know what I'm saying? It takes guts to say that I, I need to burn it. I need to just create a separation and be done with it because my conscience before God is more important than the convenience of internet. My conscience before God is more important than anything. And so I'm willing to be radical with my sin. Anyway, I could see industries being deeply impacted. I would love to see abortion clinics closing, not because we passed a law that made it illegal, not because we passed a law that cut off federal funding, but because there was no more demand for it. That's what, that is the cultural impact that the Bible displays is that we hearts get transformed and there's no more demand and it chokes off the industry. 
That's what you see happening in Ephesus, and that's what scares people. And, you know, I, I don't have any illusions. When I read my Bible, it seems to, seems to suggest a downward trajectory in culture. It seems to say that things are going to get worse before Jesus comes back. And so I don't have any illusions that everybody's going to get saved. But think about this. We just watched this video on India. Only less than 5% of people in India are believers. But do you know how many less than 5% is? 65 million. Okay, so they're all not going to get saved. 65 million is a big church, right? And so how much, and, and I was actually, this past Friday, I had the chance to take a gentleman to the airport. I won't mention his name because he's, a, he's actually a catalyzer for church planning in India. He's part of a church planning movement that has launched like 600,000 churches in the past uh, 20 years. Amazing, amazing growth. And I asked him, I said, so this religious nationalism, I said, is it, uh, is the growth of Christianity and church planning, is that part of what's driving this insecurity on the part of the, the government? And he said, oh yeah. He said, he said, they feel it more deeply than we do. Because we look at the numbers and we see, oh, like 4.8% Christian. We got a lot of work to do. But the government looks at it and they see that millions Millions of people are turning away from Hinduism, and they are turning to the Savior, and they are very threatened by it. So we don't we don't even know how many people in Ephesus were turning to Christ, but we know that that when Demetrius and when the other people involved in the idol industry, when they saw people turning to Christ, they perceived it as a real threat. So that's what I'm saying. Let's take the gospel publicly. Let's share it with our friends and our co-workers. Let's trust God to win people to Christ. And I, I hope that people do see the church as a threat. I hope that people who are committed to ungodliness and unrighteousness see in the church uh, something that threatens their livelihood, uh, something that threatens their way of life. But at the same time, if we're really following Christ, we will be the very best neighbors we will be the very best co-workers. We will be the very best citizens. I think even if they reject Christ, they will still respect Christ because of our uh, lifestyles. So, Kevin, will you come up? And uh, we're going to have a time of response. If there is anything, especially if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you've never experienced his power, uh, and even if you just want to have a conversation about that or you just want prayer about that, if you'll raise your hand, we'll be happy to come to you. If you're a believer this morning and there's one of these issues that God has got his finger on, something that you need to let go of, something you need to lay down, uh, we would love to pray with you.